please uh, pray with me. Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and bring you glory. Lord, I thank you for your love for your people uh, and that you uh, not only express that love, but you actually convey it to us through the word. Uh, the word that you, um, by which you created the world and the, the, the same word by which you affect the new creation and, this, and the same word by which you grow your people. And so, Lord, would you grow us in Christ? Would you grow us more and more into his image? Would you give us a, a love and an affection for each other, a care for one another? And Lord, would we, um, knowing your love for us, uh, share it with others? Lord, that um, this city of Santa Fe, uh, with all of its beauty, with all of its glory, uh, come to see an even greater beauty, an even greater glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, the uh, singer Elvis Costello, probably after reading a uh, review of his music that he wasn't fond of, quipped that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> and I think what he was saying, you know, is that in essence, if you want to get into the world of music, you, you don't get there by sitting down and writing. You, you get there by hearing. That's how you get in. Now, we're thinking about kind of entry points this morning as we begin this new series in the Beatitudes, where we're looking specifically about how people come into the kingdom of God. How does that happen? How do you, how do you enter into a living relationship with the Lord Jesus? That's delineated in these Beatitudes, and I think it's fitting that we just finished this series on the Ten Commandments, uh, because we saw there, uh, by looking at the law, you know, very clearly, the entry point into the kingdom, the first step in, the way the gospel enters the heart begins with the law of God. Uh, and, and to be clear, I want to be clear about this, very clear, it doesn't begin by you and me upholding the law of God. That's not how you get in. Uh, it actually begins by allowing the law of God to undo you, to kind of unravel you. And, and again, this is a very, very important important point for us to understand, um, and it, because it's hard to understand, <laughs> but it's critical if we're to understand, again, how the gospel gets in, how it gets into us, how we get into the kingdom, into a relationship with Jesus. If we, if we are to understand that, we need to understand the law of God, and in particular, we need to understand the scope of the law of God, the totality of it. We, we, we can tend to have a superficial view of it, and here's the thing. If you really listen to the law of God, um, if you take it on its own terms, as it is conveyed to us, you understand that you can't obey it, you can't keep it, that it can't be upheld by you. Because, for this reason, because the law doesn't say simply, obey me, you know, keep the golden rule, don't kill, don't commit adultery, you know, all of that. That's, it says that, but that's not all it says. You know, if you really listen to it, if you really take it on its own terms, you see that the law says loud and clear, you'll never be able to obey me. Not fully, not satisfyingly. Because taking its demands, again, on its own terms, you'll see that the demands of the law exceed anyone's capacity to keep them. And, and we know that's true, not because, you know, some weird theologian, 
you know, spun out some weird theory about it, but we know, we know that's true because of what Scripture tells us, because of what the law says about itself. Because yes, we, we've seen that it contains the Ten Commandments, it contains the moral law, but you know what else is in the law? The tabernacle. Yes, it contains standards. You know what else is in the law? Sacrifice. The atonement. And that means if we're really paying attention, if we're doing, you know, what one pastor calls deep listening to the law, taking it for what it is, as God has given it, it means that from the very beginning, in the very giving of the Mosaic law, God was saying, you'll never be able to keep it. You'll never be able to atone for your own sin. You need a sacrifice. You need a savior. You need an atonement. So the law is, is true and right. We should follow the law. We should obey the golden rule. We shouldn't steal and lie and dishonor our mother and father and all the rest. We need to do those things, but nowhere does the law say that is life. Nowhere does it assert that by that you will be saved. Because the law of God says you need more than standards, you need a sacrifice. You need a savior. And when you, you know, here's what's critical. And we saw this last week. When you let the law in, and I mean all the way in, it becomes the way into the kingdom, becomes the way into life, right? And, and we've, we've not only seen the, the truth of that, we looked at the truth of that as we've gone through the law and the Ten Commandments. Um, last week, we looked at a testimony about that, about how this had worked in, in a person's life, in the life of the Apostle Paul. He attests to it in Romans 7 when he talks about how he finally took the law on its own terms, finally let it in. He says, wildly, before that, he said, you know, until I did that, I didn't even know what sin was. Wild thing to say, considering someone with world-class religious and theological training, uh, with an unimpeachable Jewish heritage, with, with a very important position in the, in the religious hierarchy, with, with a great depth of knowledge, with, with a burning zeal, he said it wasn't until he let the law in specifically through the 10th commandment that we looked at last week, that he didn't even know what sin was. In fact, the law showed him not only that he wasn't nearly as upright in his law-keeping as he imagined, but also it revealed to him that he was using his religiosity to construct a kind of righteousness of his own. But once the law got in, he saw rule-keeping of the kind he was carrying out as its own kind of rebellion. One that kept him from seeing the reality of sin. The one that kept it all kind of manageable. You know, one that kept him of really despairing of self and really depending upon the Lord alone for salvation. So he saw that it wasn't just his worst self that was doing it in, but, but, but in, in, a, in, in, you know, in ways that he imagined, you know, he was being his best self. That was a problem too because it kept him from crying out for a savior. He describes this pithily in Galatians 2 in this way. Through the law, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to Christ. That's how the gospel got in. Before that, he was just dancing about architecture. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' inaugural sermon for his life in the kingdom. And like all inaugural addresses, he, he lays out a vision. You know, a vision for what it will look like to live in the kingdom. His program, if you will. And the first thing you've got to notice about these Beatitudes is they don't begin with demands. Uh, it is not ask 
Not what this kingdom can do for you, but what you can do for this kingdom. These are proclamations instead of grace, of blessing. Beatitudes means blessing. Blessed are you. That means that they can't be, as, as you know, some of us may have learned along the way in Sunday school or someplace, you know, the beatitudes. That, that you know, we're learning about having a good attitude, about being a good person. They're not performance directives, in other words. They're, they're proclamations of blessedness. Not, you know, if you will become poor in spirit, then you'll be blessed and happy and you'll receive the kingdom. But instead, this is radical stuff. Blessed are you. Happy are you. One, one paraphrase says, congratulations to you if you were poor in spirit. For, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And that means that whatever rewards may come, and this, this little part of this Sermon on the Mount is full of rewards, full of blessing. Uh, it means they don't come through us or by us, but they're instead conveyed to us by the grace of Jesus. They're, they're kingdom blessings. Now, the concept of the kingdom of God is anchored in the truth that God's people have in the Lord a king. Um, that, that, that he rules sovereignly, that his righteousness is infinite, that he is just, that he is good, that he is true. Um, this, historically, for the people of Israel, uh, was the thing that really set them apart as unique among all the peoples, that, that they had a heavenly king, not a human one. You know, our king is the Lord, our king is Yahweh. And, and it's, it's worth pointing out that this is a lot of drama kind of centers on this point of, of who the king is and what the kingdom is in the history of God's people. Um, because God's people often get the king and the kingdom wrong. You know, on the one hand, they get it wrong by over-realizing it. They, they look to establish some kind of tangible, civic, nation-state, human governmental regime where all the benefits of the kingdom and all the promises will be realized in the here and now through a country. You know, on the other hand, uh, it's under-realized, tragically so. Under-realized and not acknowledging that, guess what? You already have a king. You're already a member of a kingdom. All the benefits of that kingdom are yours. And so, you know, I'd encourage you to maybe read this later on today, but one of the most kind of harrowing passages in the Bible on this point is 1 Samuel 8, where the people come to the prophet Samuel. This is at the time of their history where they had no kings, and, and they come to him, and they say, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. And, and the Lord speaks to Samuel. Samuel goes to the Lord, and he says, the people are demanding a king and, and the Lord says to Samuel, this is not a rejection of you as prophet, but it is a rejection of me from being king over them. And Samuel went back to them, you know, with kind of a Hail Mary. And he, he, he went back to them and said, look, I want to tell you what life under a king is going to look like. Life under a human king. He's going he's to put some heavy taxes on you. He's going to... Um, conscript your sons into war. He's going to conscript your daughters into palace service. All your stuff, all the blessings of the Lord, your harvests and your land and your flocks and your money, you, you know, that will be taken from you by the king. And, and you will come to rue the day when you came to me and said, give us a king, just so you know. And they took all that in and their response was, yeah, but we still would like a king. You see, when they said we want a king, 
they were saying at the same time, we don't want the Lord as our king. Uh, it wasn't just a request, it was in fact a rejection, right? And, and that, you know, kind of in concentrate, in that one story, I think is the whole tragedy of the human heart. The whole tragedy of human history. That, that even though the great king lives and rules and seeks a people for himself, a life-giving relationship, where all the good things are conveyed to us and he even gives himself, you know, we kind of step back and go, yeah, but I'd like another king. I've got, a, I've got a dream for a little bit of a better kingdom than the one I'm getting right now. Which sounds like a request, but it is in fact a rejection. And, and, you know, an old seminary professor of mine in a book he wrote, put it this way, he said, in the hearts of the people, there is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would only come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. Some of you know that my, pre my two previous pastorates were in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in Kerrville, Texas. Um, in other words, the People's Republic of Cambridge and the Republic of Texas. You know, um, and I learned, you know, and, and by the way, both wonderful places. But I, I learned something really powerful in those places that, that different as the politics look, the hopes and the longings of the people are identical. Identical. You know, go, go to either of those places, pull anyone off the street and ask them what needs to be done to usher in the good life, to secure the joy, to get the peace, to affect flourishing and well-being for all, and you would very quickly find yourself in a kingdom conversation. You know, and, and one in which, you know, you're pretty quickly talking about politics, about putting in the right people and kicking out the wrong ones, putting in the right policies and ending the wrong ones, putting in the right party, putting all that in place and all will be well. But, but you know, underneath the divided politics pulses, I think, a radically unified longing that we want a king. So when we come to Matthew 5, to the inaugural sermon where Jesus sits down and to teach, beginning with a blessing, that assures the receiving of the kingdom with all its blessings. You know, we're getting into bigger things, much bigger um, than developing nice personality traits. You know, becoming, becoming better people. That's certainly in the mix, but that's not the aim. Jesus is offering to meet the unrealized longings of the human heart by ushering his people into his kingdom by his grace with him as king. He's offering satisfaction for the soul. He is offering the good life. And he gives the astounding assurance that not only can you get in, you will get in, but you'll only get in through me. That's your entry point. And the first beatitude is the first for a reason. Um, as I looked at this, I was reminded of Pilgrim's Progress, the great Christian allegory written by John Bunyan, where Christian, the pr protagonist, uh, is on the road to the celestial city and, and along the way two other travelers come along. Um, they're on their way to the celestial city too. One is called formalist, which is kind of the old language for legalist or, you know, a rule-keeping person. And the other's name is hypocrisy, which is, you know, we know what that is. It's someone who acts like they're keeping the rules, but in fact they're breaking them all the time. But both of them, critically, are from the land of vainglory. 
And even though they're on the same road together, as Christian's catching up with them, learning their story, he finds out that they didn't start the journey in the same way. Uh, Christian started the journey through the narrow gate, uh, what's called the wicket gate. Uh, but formalist and hypocrisy didn't. Uh, they, they had heard it was too difficult, it was too hard to get in, and so they found a shortcut. They jumped over a wall and got on the trail. And then, you know, as they're traveling along, they come to the hill called Difficulty. And, and they notice that, you know, the trail ahead was pretty rough, but there were two easier-looking trails coming off uh, the main trail. Now, the main trail is called Danger. Um, it was the certain way to go. No doubt that that would take you over the hill, but it was steep and narrow, and, it's, and after all, it's called Danger. The other two trails looked a lot easier. They were wider, they were flatter, not much of a grade to them. Uh, but they were called destruction. So formalists and hypocrisy did what they did at the start, thinking that they could get in however they wanted to get in, and they could go on however they wanted to go on. They took the easier, the seemingly easier and more sure way to get there. But Christian stayed on the main trail. He stayed where he knew he was supposed to be. He stayed on danger, which was also at this point in the story called the way. Difficult and trying as it was. And once they parted ways, Christian never saw them again. You see, starting points matter. Entry points matter. So, so to, to get in on the kingdom blessedness on offer in the Beatitudes, you've got to come in through the first Beatitude. This is the wicked gate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We don't use this language very much. Let's just clarify a few things. First of all, it's not a financial position. Uh, the, the parallel passage in Luke 6 doesn't say just poor in spirit. It says blessed are simply the poor, uh, which some have taken as, you know, an indication that there's spiritual advantage to being poor. Um, but the, the Bible doesn't really teach that poverty is in and of itself spiritually advantageous or disadvantageous. You know, there's a lot of people who are as money-obsessed as anyone who are poor, you know, and convinced that blessing will come through financial gain. This is why the prosperity gospel runs rampant in the poorest parts of the world, right? Uh, there's also religious sects form around the idea that, you know, if you take a vow of poverty, if you renounce all material possessions, you know, that's the way to get spiritually blessed. But whether you think blessing comes from gaining material wealth or getting rid of it, you know, you're still attaching blessing to material possessions, aren't you? And, and, and that's really not what Jesus is talking about here. There is a whole conversation to be had about that, but that's not it. It's not a financial position. It's, neither is it just a frame of mind. You know, so we're not just talking about a moral virtue or, or a healthy psychology. Um, you know, I would even say, you know, if you're interested in taking on an exercise in futility, work really hard at becoming poor in spirit. And, and, you know, you will work hard at humility, and you will see grow in your life a whole new struggle of becoming proud of your humility. It's a bit of a beast. It has to come another way. There's a story about the night a thief broke into the one-room apartment of the French novelist Honoré de Balzac, and, and, you know, this was kind of a cat burglar, and he snuck in through the window. True story. And, you know, it's in this little apartment, and there's a desk here, and there's a bed here, and Balzac is asleep here, and, and the thief is trying to pick the lock on his desk to break into. He's being very quiet. 
But then the silence is broken when he hears Balzac laughing. And, you know, the thief knows he's caught, but then he goes, you know, why are you laughing? And Balzac said, I'm, think, I'm laughing to think what risks you take to try to find money in a desk by night where the legal owner can never find any by day. <laughs> it's a little bit like that with poverty of spirit. You know, you can, you, you can try to break into it. You can try to pick that lock day or night, and, and you can't quite get your hands on it. So then the question is, if it's not something we, we get a hold of, you know, by way of frame of mind or, or finances or some other way, you know, how do you get a hold of it? And I've kind of struggled with articulating this, but, you know, I, I want to say this. We get a hold, we, we, we get into the kingdom not by gaining a hold, but, but instead by releasing our grasp, by letting go of anything other than Jesus as a qualification to get in. Anything other than Jesus is a great hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Empty hands. Augustine says God can't put into your hands unless you empty them of all other things, right? And I, I get that that's a challenging idea because, you know, the prevailing message to a healthy spirituality, to thriving in the kingdom, to thriving as a Christian, to even thriving as a human is to, is to fill up your hands. Fill up your spirit. Don't be poor in spirit. Be rich in spirit. But Jesus firmly takes the side with the poor in spirit, which is to say he takes the side of the failures, with those who have a definitive sense that the last place they actually deserve to be is in this kingdom. This is the way in, and it's the only way in, because it's impossible to gain entry into the kingdom without first giving up on your own, your own kingdom. You know, and, and we're able to see that my hands have, you know, when we, when we see that, we, we kind of see, you know what I've got in my hand? I've got a scepter, and I've got a crown, and I'm hanging on to a throne, and I've been a pretender to that throne. I've sought to be seated where, where really the true king belongs. Getting in, in other words, necessitates getting out, getting out of the tyranny of self, out of that whole exhausting, never-ending project of the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Out of the kingdom of self and into the kingdom of the Savior by poverty of spirit. By giving up on, you know, dreams of, you know, your dreams of great human capacity. Jerry Seinfeld once observed that if you really want to understand how delusional we are about our capacities, and he was kind of speaking specifically about men, he said, you know, just go out on the highway sometime and look at the guy who is, you know, um, sort of, strapped a mattress to his roof, uh, and, and, you know, but decides he's, he's going to secure it by keeping one hand on the wheel and the other on the mattress, right? Just in case the, the, the string breaks, you know, I will secure onto the roof of this car at 80 miles an hour a 75-pound foam platform, right? What a picture. So it's, it's, it's actually good and wise to embrace our frailty, our insufficiency, our lack of wisdom, our lack of strength, and, and when we honestly reckon with who we are and who the Lord is, we have to see that life comes to us not by our effort, but by way of an encounter. Um, that's how you get into the Christian life. That's, that's in fact, and I, I can't say a lot about that, that's actually how you grow in the Christian life as well. Not by our effort, but by encountering Jesus. Right? 
Search the scriptures and you will see again and again that entry into the kingdom, growth in the kingdom, comes by an encounter with the living God, with the good news of the gospel. We, we saw it recently in our series on Exodus with Moses who had, who, you know, had God's hands on his life before he was even aware of it. And you might remember that, that, he, that he set out to do great things for the king. Right? He set out to serve him, not with poverty of spirit, but with richness of spirit. He had high position in, in the kingdom of Egypt. He had amazing power. He had a strong sense of mission. He had a, a sense of him being the deliverer of his people. And he was determined to affect that deliverance, and it resulted in what? Spectacular failure. It all fell apart. His kingdom fell apart. But it wasn't until he had the encounter until he met with the living God and coming to him with nothing that he was able to enter in and was changed. And, you know, that's just one person, but look at the lives of, you know, Esther, Sarah, David, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joseph, Jacob, Peter. And, and what you will see again and again is not, you know, the life story of Bible heroes. You will see lives changed and put to good use for the king and his kingdom when they were brought to utter helplessness, to poverty of spirit, by way of an encounter with the living God. You know, probably the greatest book ever written about the Bible was John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. It's very readable, by the way. Um, and, and in the introduction, in the very first lines of the introduction, he says this. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts the knowledge of God, and a knowledge of ourselves. The, the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption. We recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full of abundance of every good and purity of righteousness, rests in the Lord alone. We cannot seriously aspire to him before we, become, we begin to become displeased with ourselves. What's he talking about there? He is describing the encounter. You see, trusting in ourselves to satisfy our deepest longings, to work through our problems, to attain for ourselves what we need in this life, to, you know, all the ways we, we want to be rich in spirit comes from this conviction that at the end of the day, you know, I don't really need God or I don't need him as much as, I, as everybody else. And, and, you know, we can only keep that conviction by keeping away from him, keeping our distance. You know, that's not to say that we, don't, we may not find him kind of useful as a wingman. You know, as the best supporting actor in our life movie. Someone that we can go to for some advice, for some tips, for a little life coaching kick in the pants that we would be motivated. Um, but I want to say, you know, if our experience with God is never one of being undone by him, you know, I want to say it may be that you've never actually encountered the living God of the Bible. But when we come out of, you know, our little carefully constructed, curated lives and come before that God, we not only come to know him as he truly is, we come to know ourselves as we truly are. That's good news. And, 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 and in fact, when, when, you, when you stand before the real king, the true king, you begin to see other things as well. You begin to see the traitorous kings. You know, the kings to which you've been bending the knee, you and me. You know, the kings who, you know, like, like Samuel said they would, have been robbing us of life. 
and look, you know, I just read from John Calvin. You guys know I'm a Presbyterian pastor. Um, I, I get that this idea of becoming displeased with ourselves is a hard one for us to swallow. I think it's probably especially hard for 21st century Americans. You know, so I, I want to be very clear. What I'm not talking about is self-hatred or, or, or self-degradation or, or devaluing of the self. Um, in fact, far from it. I would, I would argue that, that a real encounter with the living God will come to reveal what, that, the truth that he, he sees human beings of, as of supreme worth, of greater value than whatever your self-esteem will produce for you, of greater love for other people than you can ever generate out of yourself because you're seeing human beings through the eyes of the living God who made them in his image and loves them. And, and you'll come to see, you know, how devaluing and degrading it is for human beings to try to make a life for themselves apart from a relationship with that God who made them. And, and I understand that we live in a culture that considers, you know, that there is no worse fate for anybody than to have low self-esteem. You know, because we have imbibed the message of the great theologian Whitney Houston that says the greatest love of all is within, is inside of me. But, but it's important to step back and recognize some cultural blinders here and see that, you know, that our deep commitments to high self-esteem, you know, put us, you know, is not loving to people and actually puts us at odds with most cultures and most, you know, both now and for most of history. A few years ago, there was an article published by a psychologist named Lauren Slater called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And and it was essentially reporting what experts have known for a long time, that there is no evidence to show that low self-esteem is a problem in modern American society. Quite the opposite. She quotes three research-based peer-reviewed academic studies, which all reach the same conclusion, that people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And she even gets into the details and says, you know, for all the variety of problems that violent offenders have, they tend to share this in common. They've all got high self-esteem. So, you know, is the answer for us to just kind of have low self-esteem? Well, no. <laughs> you know, anyone who grew up in kind of a shame culture would tell you that's got a whole world of problems all its own. So, you know, what are we being called here to? What is poverty of spirit? You know, the gospel calls us not to high self-esteem or low self-esteem, but to a right esteem and to a right estimation of ourselves. Because the problem with our ideas of both high self-esteem and low self-esteem is that they center on the self. They are like a floating currency evaluation. They gain an estimation of the self from the self in comparison with other selves. And that'll drive you crazy. You know, because you're always grading on your behavior, your performance, how you're doing in comparison with yourself. You know, can you keep the conscience quiet? Can you, all of that, you know, anything, something, anything that would give you a good sense of worth and identity, right? Except when you meet Jesus. Except when you have the encounter. When you come to him as his disciples did here in this, in this text, sitting at his feet, hearing what he has to say not only to his people, but about his people, you, you then are able to receive the gift of having esteem, worth, utterly relocated out of, out of the realm of relative worth 
into the realm of a real righteousness, of, of real value, seeing you know, that we lack it in ourselves, but, but that righteousness, that identity, that life is on full offer from the Savior in his kingdom. And that we can be assured that we gain possession of the blessing declared to us right here. You know, that you get the whole kingdom. We get a better, truer, eternal, lasting estimation of worth and identity from the king who loves us and desires to give us all things. We're, we're freed from gaining that sense of worth from our life movie, right? And we get it in the kingdom by way of encounter. And then we can see that to become poor in spirit is actually to relinquish and let go of all the worthless things we were deluded into thinking were riches so that we'd be able to receive the real riches. You know, it's interesting that one of the most famous stories in the Bible isn't a rags-to-riches story, it's a riches-to-rags story. Maybe, maybe more specifically, a riches-to-rags-to-riches story. It's known as the parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke 15. It's the story of a son who has a very wealthy father who does something very bold in his attempt to build his kingdom, to get a hold of the good life, to fill up the hands. And, you know, it's not exactly accurate to describe what he did as bold as much as it is to say it was brazen. He goes to his father. He says, I'd like my inheritance early. His very wealthy father. Uh, when he says, I'd like my inheritance early, he's essentially saying, you know, I'm tired of waiting around for you to die, and I would like my money now. And wildly, his gracious father obliges. He gives him the inheritance, and off he goes down the road into what he imagines will be the good life. You know, and, and in the process, making a, 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 de, a definitive break with his father, what should have been a definitive break. But the wild thing is, rather than his wealth and filling his hands, bringing in the good life that he had dreamed of, it became the source of his undoing. He squanders it in a faraway country, disaster falls on him, and he falls so far that he can't even feed himself. And here is this young Jewish boy eating from a pig trough. He's lost everything. He's lost not only his wealth, he's lost his family, he's lost his father, he's lost his home. But it is from that place, hands emptied, without wealth, resources, status, in the pig slop, something remarkable happens. Jesus puts it this way. He says he came to his senses. He's brought to his senses. And in coming to his senses, he, in coming to his senses, he decides to return to his father, and he, and he hopes that he might just be a servant in the house. And, and as he's coming up the road, probably kind of rehearsing to himself the humiliating speech he's going to have to make in order to be able to shovel the stalls and just kind of be in proximity to the father. The father, in fact, it turns out, has been walking, you know, uh, looking down the road every day. And, and he sees him from a long way off, and we're told he felt compassion to him, and he didn't wait for him to get to him. He ran to him, and he embraced him, and he kissed him, and he heard the confession of his son who had finally come to his senses, attained a right estimation of himself, and he tells the father, I've sinned against you in heaven and I'm no longer worthy to be call your, called your son. And you almost get the sense that he's going to keep on with the rehearsed speech, but he gets cut off. The wild thing is that the father doesn't chastise. He doesn't throw him out. He doesn't run, you know, run down the record of wrongs. He simply receives him. And, and wildly, he re-inherits him. He forgave him, he embraced him, he said, everything that is mine is yours. He reconferred upon him the identity he had so brutally renounced, 
wraps him in the robes, puts the family ring on his finger, puts sandals on his feet. And critically, and there's deep theology in this, critically, he threw him a great party. Great party. At great expense. Because, he says, my son was lost and now is found. He was dead and now he's alive. He he died. He died how? By way of self-fulfillment. By filling of the hands. And now, having come to his senses and the end of himself, coming with nothing, he is resurrected and received, re-inherited. The son who is rich in spirit, we find out, was actually terribly poor. And it was only when he came to his senses, when he, was, when he became poor like that, that he actually became rich. And so here's the question for you and me. You know, are, are we clinging to riches that keep us out of that kingdom. There are far greater treasures to be had in Christ's kingdom, and the only way to enter into that kingdom is for you and me to come to our senses, to have an encounter with the king, in order that we would attain a true estimation of ourselves, a right esteem, a right esteem that would tell us the truth of the gospel, that we are far needier than we ever imagined. And that even as, we are, even as we are of far greater worth than any achievement or resume or bank account or, ever, or any attainment would ever secure for us. And do you want to receive the kingdom? You've got to renounce your own. And know the joy of the Father who's eagerly looking down that same path that you walk down in rejection of him, ready to receive you eager to receive you, re-inherit you, rejoice in you, and give you the whole kingdom and himself as king. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the gospel, the good news. Um, thank you, Jesus, that you do not devalue us. You delight in us. You do not, you know, demand of us groveling, but instead you give us grace Lord, what better, what better conclusion to a text like this than to come to your table? You know, to be, you know, like that re-inherited son who came to his senses and, you know, wildly on the day that he thought would be his great humiliation, instead he finds that he is entering into a great party. The day when, you know, he felt his greatest needs, that was the same day he feasted on the richest affair. And Lord, that's us. That's us, your people. We come to this table with faith, which is simply a flinging of ourselves upon you, a turning from the tyranny of self, a turning from our pitiful kingdoms to the one and true king, that we would be fed at your table. Lord, this is good for us, and you actually attach promises to the table that would say that there is real grace conveyed to us in this act, that Jesus, you're present here, that for those who have put their faith in you, uh, that they would... No, viscerally, spiritually, in our whole being, that, that, that we've met with the Lord Jesus and we've been fed at his table and we're going to be back here again next week because, you know, we are those who are inveterate um, wanderers, but you are a faithful shepherd. So shepherd our hearts here. Feed us at your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.